Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today I'm joined by Zachary Virgo. Hello everyone. I'd like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? When I was a freshman in high school, my friend Greg came up to me and he we, we were always trying new kind of nerdy things. And he had said that he found out that the local Barnes & Noble was going to be running a Dungeons & Dragons game, 3rd edition, uh, every Wednesday night. And he was trying to recruit friends in our group to go do it, and I was the only one who was interested. So him and I would drive out there every Wednesday night, and we were playing in a game with a bunch of guys who were way older than us. We were both, I think, like 13 or 14 at the time, and everyone else was a grown adult. Uh, and the guy who was running that game is actually a guy who still DMs a game I play in every week now. Well, I'd say it's been about 15, 16 years now. Same characters? No, no, this this was, uh, that was D&D 3rd Edition, and that was a bunch of different people ago. This is, the game I play in now is when he runs for us, it's a Mech Warrior game. But it just turned out that through the years, he met people that I also met through work, and through other work, he met them, and we were all friends, and they were like, oh, you should meet our friend Chris, and I was like, oh yeah, I know that guy. So when you finally got the courage to go join the first session, were you just confidently walking up to the table? Did you have to slowly make your way to the table? Well, we uh, had contacted him through email saying we were going to be there, and he kind of gave us the basic just like, okay, since this is your guys' first time playing, here's what I recommend. So we actually got to the bookstore early, and they used to have the starter set you can get that had a basic set of rules, some basic stuff on character creation. Actually, I think it came with a player's handbook and a set of dice. So we both went there and we both bought a set of like one of those. So we had a set of dice, um, which I think I still have, that like starter set where every dice was a different color, which now would drive me nuts. But back then I was like, oh, look at all these fun colors. One's red, one's blue. Whoa, how insane. Uh, and, you know, a basic rule book. And we we brought character sheets that we printed out online, and we kind of got an idea for our characters, and everyone sort of sat around and made characters that first night. What was your first character? I was a bard, which is completely not the kind of play style I play with these days, but I, I like the idea of not having to choose any particular role, being able to kind of roll in every direction. I wound up being incredibly useless almost the entire time we played, because I never really committed towards any one thing. And also we were playing in a, a game world that our GM had kind of created, and magic was illegal. But I didn't really think a whole lot about that, and I kept constantly using magic in front of people. Did he take it easy on you guys to begin with, or was it a sink or swim type of situation? You know, the, the sort of pre-adventure stuff was pretty easy on us before we had, you know, done our first dungeon proper, but when we got into that first little, we were raiding, like, an ancient wizard's laboratory, and I think we all pretty much nearly died. Is there anything you learned from him in the early days that you still continue with today? Back then, I wasn't really learning it, but now that I, I kind of think back on it, definitely... You don't want things to be too easy or too hard, and you also don't want to hold hand your player's hands, but you need to give them some direction. When did you make the transition 
into the GM role. When I went off to college at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, uh, me and all the guys on my floor would play games every week, and it just was one of those things where we were alternating. Everyone was playing different, uh, was you know choosing a different game every couple of weeks, and then we would switch who was DMing, and it just came up to be my turn, and I chose to play good old-fashioned D&D, and went with it. Do you remember how those tabletop sessions got started? Yeah, we we had all just met in the dorms. We were in the honors dorms at Ball State. We were all just a bunch of just total geeks. I mean, we we had a guy on our floor who all he did was play Diablo 2 speedruns and Nightmare Mode, and World of Warcraft had just recently come out, and everyone was playing World of Warcraft all the time. So we all just kind of gravitated towards each other in the study lounge when it wasn't being used for study, it was being used for board games or role-playing games. An honors dorm seems like a pretty safe space for role-playing. Yeah. We were a bunch of dorks, but it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. It was a ton of fun. Do you remember any of the particular stories you told? The first one I actually used a pre-made because I was a little nervous about creating my own world. The first time I ever actually did something on my own was when I was back home and I was playing with some of my old friends that I'd worked with. Uh, I worked at GameStop for a very long time, and it was a lot of my GameStop friends. And I we I had been playing with them for a couple of years, and I took my turn DMing, and I made up a story, and I sat down and I typed out this really intricate plot and story and oh yeah and then they'll go and do this and they'll go and do that and you know it all started with you know you're walking along a rainy path in the dark during the cold midwinter it's not quite cold enough to freeze but it almost feels like ice hitting your face and you come across a tavern in the distance with you know a warm welcoming glow of a fire you could rest your feet and fill your belly and every single one of them was like nope I keep walking and that's kind of when I learned that, like, oh, maybe you should always have a contingency plan because your players are jerks. So you had to learn to let go of control somewhat? Yeah, a little bit. It, I realized that it wasn't just my story. It was a living narrative. And similarly, one of the, the next time I ran a game with these people, uh, I wasn't really paying attention to their characters at all. And I didn't realize they had all rolled evil characters. So when I would started them in my story, they were in... Uh, the Grand Chapel of the Temple of Heronius, getting a a quest from the head priest of Heronius, and of course, you know, I didn't really think much of it when they asked if they could say prayers with the head priest, and they went into a special solar, and then they murdered him, because they were all evil. And if I had asked for their physical descriptions, or anything about them, I would have realized that, oh, hey, these guys are all, like, monsters and terrible. So how many editions of Dungeons & Dragons have you played? Well, I've played... I've personally run 3rd, 3.5, 4th, and I've played in 5th, and I even had uh, a friend of mine's dad once upon a time ran 2nd edition for us. That was an interesting foray into the past. Do you have a preferred version? Uh, I really like 5th. A lot of people aren't really jiving with it, but I, I really enjoy 5th edition so far, and 4th uh, I always felt was really easy to get new players involved in because it was a little bit less rules and a little bit more video gamey, 
and I did like that, but I think I prefer to play in the 3.5 or Pathfinder kind of rules. What other systems have you GM'd besides Dungeons and Dragons? Vampire the Masquerade, Mutants and Masterminds, Pathfinder, and then all the D&D editions since third. How did you get involved with Vampire and Mutants and Masterminds? Vampire was when I was at school. It was just we were when we were taking turns DMing. Uh, we were in the middle of a vampire campaign, and we all made characters. Even we just every couple weeks alternated on who was DMing. So basically, every DM would write a little mini story, and we would run our characters through that little mini story, and then we would alternate with like, oh well, you know, Xavian uh, went to another or is sick, so he's not there this week, and then you would just run them through their story, and we'd swap out. And, the next person would pick up and that way we all got to play and we all got to DM and it wasn't the most intricate well played out plot because we were all just sort of adding in little stories here and there but it was fun and Vampire and the White Wolf games in general are a pretty fun system once you get through the rules Mutants and Masterminds that was one at my local comic shop um, I had picked it up online because I, I love superheroes I love superhero stuff and uh, there was you know, a call out for people at the local comic shop to run games, and so I ran one. It didn't last very long. It only lasted about three and a half months before scheduling conflicts kind of pulled everyone apart. But I uh, ran that, and that was fun. It was really cool kind of getting to step into like a golden age comic book and be a really corny supervillains and, you know, yell out silly catchphrases. What kind of story did you tell? Uh, with Mutants and Masterminds, like I said, I didn't really get to finish. That's actually, I feel, the story of most GMs is we never finished. But it was sort of supposed to be a kind of basic Doctor Doom kind of villain who had recruited a bunch of smaller-time villains to fight the heroes for him uh, and distract them from him doing all these other major crimes and stealing all these major artifacts to put together like a doomsday weapon he was going to hold the world hostage with. How's the preparation for that game different from Dungeons & Dragons? The way Mutants Masterminds deals with damage is a lot different. I do feel like an HP system is a little bit more cut and dry, but for a game with superheroes it makes sense that you don't really have that. They use sort of a... It's called like a bruise system, so... You know, you get hit, you're bruised, you get hit again, the bruise turns into, like, you know, depending on how well they roll, it could turn into a break or a scrape, and you lose stats depending on how beat up you are, eventually ending in death. Um, and in, in general, though, the the combat doesn't really use as many dice. You don't need you don't use a d20, it's, it's all tens and sixes, just kind of like how Vampire is. Uh, and there's a lot more story prep than sort of combat prep. It's a lot more people role-playing and a lot less people doing character fighting. Do you have a preference between the two systems, or is it just one fits the setting better? Uh, I, you know, I think I kind of prefer Vampire just insofar as it comes attached to the whole White Wolf universe, and so there's a lot more to play with there, whereas Mutants and Masterminds, it does have sort of a base, like, you can use our world... But for the most part, you're crafting your own world with that. Are you currently GMing? 
<laughs> again, it, the story of all GMs is we never got to finish. It's kind of a gray area. I've been running a game with my girlfriend and one of my best friends and another couple of uh, friends of ours who we're really close with. Uh, but we haven't played in about a month now just because life has been happening and everyone's been busy. Have you started looking into different RP systems that are shorter, easier to finish? I've definitely been looking a lot at Dungeon World. I've heard so many great things about it. And since all the rules are available for free, you, you know, and even if you buy the rule book, it's only 10 bucks, and it's very cheap. You still can't buy 5th edition D&D in a PDF, so it's a $50, $60 investment even to get one book. Uh, and I, I really like the idea of that, and I'd like to run something in that. But I think right now, my what I've been doing is I've been kind of, I kind of got my girlfriend into it, and she was definitely someone who was very trepidatious to approach it. And then once she got into it, she just really fell all the way in. She started making like a journal customized for her character, and writing all this side story stuff, and drawing all the characters from her side stories. And uh, she's now interested in possibly learning how to DM. So I've been kind of trying to get her involved in that. Do you do anything for the party's immersion, like journaling? Uh, I leave that up to the characters, although I do always say, tell them that the more robust a backstory is, the more I can work things in. So maybe, you know, I can work characters from their backstory into the game. And I always try to do that a little bit, you know, because everyone, not only is there this overarching story, but everyone wants more personal stories. And I, I find that really hooks players in a lot more than just like, you have no time for any of that. You're saving the world. Ignore everything else. Uh, I, I definitely also like to do things with... Uh, I've been exploring music. Uh, just like down, There's websites set up where you can set up playlists of atmospheric music to play in the background. And I always award characters extra you know, experience or extra abilities depending on their backstories or the things that they do that really fit role-playing. Can you give an example from one of your more recent sessions? Well, an example with a backstory would be one of my characters was an acrobat in like a Cirque du Soleil kind of thing. Um, and so I let him have a bonus on his acrobatic skill off the bat because it's something he's been doing his whole life. It wouldn't make sense if that was his backstory and he started off with zero skill points in acrobatics. Uh, and something more recent is... You know, we had a, a situation where one of our characters, who was a, a maid or yeah, a wizard, was involved in a old building that had a repository of magic stuff being on fire, and the magic stuff caught on fire. And he was supposed to run, but he didn't. He tried putting the fire out, and you know, he said, "Well, my character wouldn't let all these mad, wouldn't let all this powerful magic, go, you know, get destroyed. He would do what he could to save it." And I thought that was really cool idea of him. He might lose his character here, but he's really role-playing into it, and so he did manage to eventually put the fire out, but all the stuff was destroyed. But the fire, it was like magic fire, since it caught all these magic items on fire, and I had him absorb it, and he gained you know, the ability to make all of his fire spells do a little bit more damage. And speaking of risks to the characters, what is your attitude toward character death? I feel like if the characters are going to get themselves killed, they're going to get themselves killed. I try not to put them in situations where death is guaranteed if they make one mistake. But we've had things where two of our characters are trying to sneak through a pack of sleeping werewolves. And somebody screws up and wakes everyone up. And 
he decided to fight, and he almost got killed for it. And if he continued to fight, he would have died. But he eventually surrendered, and they took him hostage. I wasn't going to let him making a mistake kill him, but if he was going to be stubborn about it, he would have had to roll a new character. And have you ever saved NPCs that should have died because you liked them? Oh no, I kill NPCs left and right. They're expendable. Do you have any long-term NPCs in your game? Uh, they are now traveling with a guy who helped them out. He was a member of an elite force that fought Hell Knights and Demons. And they helped him, and they saved several members of his squad, so he kind of <laughs> haphazardly devoted himself to their cause before he found out that they were all crazy people who are kind of murder hobos. Uh, and he's been traveling with them for a little while now. And before that, there was a character who they met in the first campaign, or the first uh, t- adventure when we first started playing. He was one of the NPCs who got them together as a group and moved them along, and he's dead now. He got a hole punched through his torso. Do you generally try to come up with NPCs that will accompany the party ahead of time, or do they tend to happen organically? Uh, In the case of both of these characters, they were made up ahead of time because they were at first a party of only three people, and it was kind of light, and they were missing some roles in the group, so I made the NPCs. Originally, you know, there was a cleric there to help heal until they got their hands on more ability. They had a druid, and they started actually buying you know, more healing potions and scrolls and things that they could use to heal. Uh, and then they got a character who's a tank because none of them are frontline fighters, and he's only there until it's going to serve the story purpose, and then from then on out, they have to try to figure things out on their own. But for at least a little while, I figured it'd be nice for them to not have to worry about what role am I going to play or what am I going to be. Just play what they want to play and have fun. Did your party choose their characters individually or as a group? They chose them individually. And I tried my best not to you know, try to persuade them to do anything. I thought it would be best if they just enjoyed whatever they played. So what is the party's current professions? We have a druid. However, the druid's storyline is coming to an end, and she has decided that when her storyline comes to the end, she wants to roll a new character and retire her her old character, because she feels that's what the character would take her place in the way her storyline is ending. We have a barbarian. We have a rogue-slash-mage, and we have a rogue-slash-ranger. Do you have any plans for the retired druid to make cameos? Well, she is actually taking a spot. She is a, sort of an Anastasia kind of character. Then uh, this was all made up by the player. She was kidnapped as a little Her parents, not kidnapped, they you know, whisked her away as a child to a druid nearby druid circle for protection where she's been hiding and raised by them her whole life. Uh, but the, her aunt killed her parents and took over the throne. And now her friends are helping her take the throne back, and she's going to take her rightful place as queen of the land. It sounds like your characters kind of write their own endings as far as they haven't been killed. 
Do you have any endings in mind for the characters? Or do you think that's up to the players? Well, the way I'm going to play it if we wind up getting to the end is... I'll let them decide if their characters are going to keep adventuring, and maybe they'll either play them again, or they'll show up again down the line if we play another game in this universe. Or, you know, I'll let them decide what their characters do, because they would know more than I would, unless they get killed, and then they're going to wind up being dead. Although they might currently, they're in possession of a very powerful artifact that if activated the wrong way, will lead in every the deaths of them and everyone within a five-mile radius, and they're playing around with it because they don't realize that because they haven't learned anything about it yet because they haven't taken the time to do it. And that's one of those things where they've made the choice to be stupid about it and not learn anything and to toy with this thing that they know is just powerful. And if they activate it just by playing with it and trying to get it to work, they're all going to die. Did you try to make it clear how they should try to identify it? They've had a few opportunities to research it or to find out more about it, and they've just chosen to ignore those. And they all they know is that it's very powerful, and it was sealed away for a very long time, and that there's, they've been being chased by people who want it. And they're, they're trying to get it to a specific place for a purpose that they haven't bothered to try to learn. Because <laughs> it hasn't been important enough to them, so they're... They're just doing it to do it. Do you have to deal with player fatigue or GM fatigue more? Uh, I try to keep things interesting. I don't I don't try to put them in situations that are too similar. I recently had them fighting a giant uh, boule and some vampire wizards in a ancient stone dwarf mecha. So some of the players were standing on top of the stone mecha, fighting off vampire troops, and you know two people were running it on the inside, working in tandem to fight and control it. Uh, I think a lot more I have to deal with is DM fatigue because, you know, again, it's that sort of thing where the players kind of control their own story, not me, so I can have everything sort of prepared for a night, and then one thing one of them does will just derail everything that I've spent all this time working on. Particularly, I have one player who's kind of a min-maxer, and he is trying his hardest to to make the best character possible, but he also has a hard time not metagaming because he's he's memorized the rule books, And he's one of those guys who's... You know, he hasn't really played before, but he's watched a lot of... He's listened to podcasts and watched a lot of streams of people playing. And he's read a lot of fantasy books. So he knows, you know... I'm not a masterful writer. I I can't write a hidden plot point that no one's going to see, but he's the only one who really ever sees them because he knows the tropes. He knows the, oh, this guy's going to wind up being a bad guy. Uh, and it, it is very hard for him to hold himself back sometimes and not throw a cog in the wrench. Or, wow, not throw a wrench in the cogs. I mean, you shouldn't throw either in either. That is true. Have you tried to double bluff him uh i've tried but it's he's he's actually pretty smart so it's kind of hard <laughs> to try to get some stuff past him there are things again like this whole thing with the artifact he just hasn't been caring about it so he hasn't paid attention to it so there's all these little things that i think he w- he's just not catching on because he's doesn't care about them do you have to 
stop him from metagaming somewhat at the table? I try. Sometimes I call him out on it. And sometimes I change rules arbitrarily, like, he'll be like, oh, well, this spell doesn't work that way. And I'll say, well, it does in this world. Yeah, you just gotta remind him who the GM is. Exactly. Your character takes ten points of jerk damage. Yeah, I, I try my hardest not to railroad them, but sometimes they get so distracted by things. And I think that's actually one of the things, you know, I've played with friends and I've played with people who I just know through, you know, like the comic book shop. And while I feel like I have more fun with my friends, I feel like I get more done with people in the comic shop because we don't, you know, when me and my friends get together, it's not just us getting together to play D&D, it's us getting together to see each other. So we'll maybe spend two or three hours of our four-hour session just talking and catching up and getting oh look at this funny video i found do you think that having your friend's adventure on the rails would be a negative thing uh i think the only it, it could be more positive except for the fact that i think they would have less fun and i like doing things that are fun yeah you know, I, I want them to enjoy themselves and i and i also enjoyed you know running games that are more fun than story you know, I could tell a great story. I could tell probably an okay story. But if it's not fun for them and it's not fun for me, what's the point? So when you are preparing for your next encounter, what do you do? The first thing I do is I get a, a template sort of idea of what I'm going to have them do. For instance, right now they're getting ready to try to sneak into a castle while a militia is keeping an army occupied. Now, they've been given an idea, they're going to been given the idea of going in through the back way with someone who's going to blow a hole in the wall. And that's the smart way to go about it. But if they decide they want to rush in through and, and help the troops fight, they have that prerogative too. And it has its own benefits and drawbacks. They might get some extra help from some people they've you know, helped save from this army. Or they could keep themselves distracted so long that the person they're trying to fight gets away. Uh, so I, when I get the idea for that, I sort of set up a general idea. Well, if they go this way, I'm going to have them fight this. And if they go that way, I'm going to have them fight this. And so then I'll just get a general template like, okay, they're fighting vampire sorcerers and vampire fighters. So I just sort of make a general template up of what those are. And maybe I'll mix them up in terms of like, this guy's got an axe and this guy's got a sword, but they have the same stats and they do the same damage. Cause it's just easier that way. I'm not going to roll up 20 different NPCs. And I sit down with my map and I decide where they're going to be laid out. And I decide if, you know, if they're in a dungeon, I'll decide if there's any traps, if there's any chests, doors that are locked. And, and after I get all that set out, I decide, like, what attacks the NPCs will have, how much damage it all does. And then I'll set it up against something that's the same CR in the, the monster manual, if I'm not just using something from the monster manual. And I'll compare it and see if it's too powerful or not powerful enough for that CR. Do you ever notice your players get bored during an encounter? Not so much get bored, but we're all adults who work full-time jobs for the most part. So, you know, some people are just really, by the time we get together, they're, they've already worked an eight-hour shift and they're tired. And so their mind starts to wander a little bit. But... I think for the most part, they all enjoy it. Actually, I think they really like the combat more than they like the stupid talking I have them do. 
So how do you keep them engaged? Throw them curveballs. Uh, I try not to, you know, like I was using that example earlier of them fighting on the ancient dwarven mecha. You know, I, I had, I knew that there was going to be two people controlling the thing, and I kind of knew which two people were going to do that based on their personalities. And also one of them had to be a magic user, and we only have one magic user. So I kind of knew, okay, these other two people fight, you know, hand-to-hand. What am I going to have them do? So I got the idea of, you know, there's a hatch on the top of the mech, and their guys are trying to get in through there, so they have to get on like out on the shoulders and the head and fight them off. So that way everyone stays engaged, and it's not just like, even though it comes out to the same way as fighting on a flat surface in the middle of a desert, it doesn't seem that way because the way you set it up, the way you dress it, the way you describe the scenes, and maybe every round or two they have to make a, a reflex save to avoid falling off the side of the mech. Did you have any special music for this encounter? I've only just started experimenting with the music stuff, unfortunately. I didn't really think about it as, as ambiance. So no Pacific Rim theme? No, it was in my head. Sometimes I'll queue up sound effects on my iPad and I'll, pl- I'll play them for them. I'm glad you clarified that this was a mech. I was imagining a dwarven holy city. Yeah, no, oh yeah, sorry, a mecha. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, just sort of like a giant dwarf made of stone that can be controlled by people on the inside. Was that an idea that you had from other media? Or was that just something you'd wanted to do? I do occasionally steal stuff from other media. I listen to the Adventure Zone podcast, and they had the giant, uh, they have that gachapon machine they use in between adventures where they, everyone gets like a random item. I did steal that for them and had them do something like that once, which was kind of fun. Uh, but the, the dwarf was just sort of an idea. I thought it would be, you know, I always try to tread the line between stupid fun and engaging. You know, I don't want something to be so dumb that it takes them out of the game completely and they're just like, whatever, this thing is so stupid. But, you know, I thought that was a good line and it walks the line. You know, similarly, I had them fight some ghost pirates and they came to a truce with the ghost pirates to kill a bunch of non-ghost, well, to make a bunch of pirates ghost pirates. Uh, And so they, you know, they had to deal with these ridiculous ghost pirates, but it was, again, it's walking that line between the fun, the silly, and the serious. Is there a lot of fourth wall breaking in your game? No, not so much. I don't really try to, like, wink and nod towards a whole lot. I did once upon a time, I used to have uh, a Zeppelin crew that would show up in almost every single one of my campaigns that I used to run for my friends. Because for some reason, I had one friend who was always about I need to buy. A, we need to like get the services of a zeppelin to dr- to fly us wherever we need to go. So I always had a zeppelin crew that was based on the Star Trek Next Generation crew. They had slightly different names, but that's what they were. Shout out Presley. Yeah, they had a, a security captain uh, who was a dwarf that everyone just called Dwarf. <laughs> nice. The captain was uh, oh, what was his name? He he was a balding human. I can't remember what name I gave him, but I thought it, at the time it was clever, and I spent like an hour researching French names to find something that sounded kind of like Jean-Luc, but like wasn't Jean-Luc. I was wondering if he had a English name, but spoke with a French accent. 
that would have been funny too. I wasn't that clever back back then. Did you do voices? Oh yeah, I like to do. I don't do huge amount of voices. I just don't have the range for it. But I'll, I'll do voices uh, if for nothing else than to differ- differentiate the characters. What's the latest NPC that you voiced? Uh, the last one I voiced. Well, the the last one I made who had a different voice was there was a. And I guess this is some fourth wall breaking for you, but they were in the city that's controlled by vampires. They were undercover, and they were looking for a place to sell some some gold teeth they had stolen from some pirates. And they found a, a jewelry shop owned by a vampirist named Tiff Manchi, uh, who invited them to breakfast at Tiff Manchi's. Uh, <laughs> I don't really know how I came up with the name. I thought it was just a stupid off-the-cuff like breakfast at Tiffany's joke. But they wound up really liking the character, and I kept bringing her back, and she had sort of a, you know, like, the vampirist hisses a little bit whenever she would talk. A little, you know, a little raspy, because she's undead. Uh, And I I think I've got some characters queued up for the next adventure that are going to have some voices. Like I said, it's just kind of, again, it's it's walking the line between the silly and the fun and the serious. You know, you want to keep people engaged, and the voices do that. Do your players do voices? No, they don't. Uh, I would like them to, but they're all sort of a little blah by the time game starts. You know, our our barbarian does have a battle cry. Uh, she is an elf barbarian, and the, the girl who plays her is a tiny, tiny gal who um, is not at all threatening in the slightest. So her when I, I asked her, you know, when she was... Berserker raging. I said, "What's your war cry?" She said, "What?" And I said, "What's your what? What are you yelling?" She just went, "Woo!" Just like that. Not loud. Not raw. Just woo. So now every time she berserks, I tell her she has to do that. Has she taken it in stride? Oh, absolutely. She also got a sword that uh, lights on fire when she says a code word, and I just like picked a random word generator, and it was sassafras. So now every time she goes into battle with her sword, she has to yell sassafras to get it to light on fire. And she she thinks it's hilarious. I'm imagining a He-Man situation. Something along those lines. Uh, except instead of saying, you know... By the power of sassafras. Yeah. Yeah, and it lights the sword on fire. That's one thing I actually do have a hard time with, is I always tend to give my characters cool stuff, because I want them to... I think it's it's fun to have cool stuff, but then like it went to being too powerful or too cool for too long. How do you get rid of things that have overstayed their welcome? Sometimes I have them stolen, um, and there's a, you know I'm not I'm not always going to have them 100 percent. Like while you were asleep in the night, someone took this. I mean, obviously they always have a chance to catch a thief or see someone do something. But, you know, have someone steal. I, I could always have them fight rust monsters, and that would probably do away with a lot of their magical equipment real quick. You know, there are ways in the rules to do it without being a dick. Is your party, they may not do voices, but are they in first person when they speak, third person? Uh, they go back and forth. I will say they they tend to get into their characters pretty well, like the you know, the barbarian does a lot of things that are brash and not well thought out, as opposed to who she really is, who's a 
very sharp individual. Our druid is actually just like a 14, 15 year old kid who's like a goth, basically, because she was raised by druids in a haunted forest. And she just kind of acts like a weird, creepy kid who doesn't talk a lot and likes to collect teeth. And our our guy who's the ranger, you know, he puts the most of himself into his character because he just sort of sees his character as himself. And so he's just sort of like a, you know, easy-go-lucky kind of like, well, I travel from place to place. I never settle down long in one place. And he's always looking on the bright side, even when they're in the middle of a pitched battle and they're all bleeding out. Does the min-maxer stay true to character? He tries. There are different different times where he catches himself with things like, oh, I really want to do this, and I feel like this is the smart thing to do, but my character wouldn't do that. And I appreciate that, and I, I, I do appreciate when my players think less about what's best for their situation or what they should do, and more about what their characters would do. Do you try to incentivize him to make the character decision? Oh, yeah, I always tell them that they'll get extra XP for staying in character and doing extra fun roleplay stuff. Has he ever had any rough moments with the rest of the characters? Or the rest of the players, I should say. Before we introduced the ranger, and it was just the three of them, uh, the two ladies got in a fight with somebody at a concert, and he thought the best thing to do was to try to kill a bunch of security guards who were coming to arrest them. He had to uh, run, (laughs) and he abandoned the other two who were arrested after he nearly killed a bunch of innocent people. So he kind of went off on his own for a while and was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do about those two, because I can't go to the police station to bail them out. And also, like, they're idiots. And I don't think they were particularly happy with him for basically abandoning them in their time of need. And did the conflict stay in character, or did it spill into the table? I think it stayed in character pretty well. I've only had the other way happen once when we were playing with a group of people, and one of our characters left everyone else to die and actually set it up in a way where he was like, well, kill the monster, and I can get all the treasure, and I can get all of everyone else's stuff, too. And everyone just kind of looked at him, and they're like, you're an asshole. What are you doing? Were you the GM in that situation? I absolutely was, and I told him, I was like, hey, if that's what you want to do, that's fine, but keep in mind that I don't think anyone else is going to want to play with you after that. How did that situation resolve itself? Uh, well, (laughs) personally, he didn't kill everybody, but then we still never played again because something happened outside of the game, and we stopped talking to that person, and that game fell apart. In retrospect, would you rather it had fallen apart than continued? Uh, it would have been it. I would rather have not had personal issues with any of the people I was playing with, because I do consider, I only really play with my friends. So I would, I would much rather have it gone the other way, uh, and him not have been a jerk in real life, and then maybe we would have seen if he was continuing to be a jerk in the game, and see how that would have had consequences for his character. Have there been any other moments of role-playing bleed in any of your games? I had a moment, I was running, uh, when I worked at, I worked in a movie theater for a while, 
and I was running a game for some people I worked with who were just curious into what it was all about. And we would get together in the conference room at the movie theater every Thursday night, and we would play. I ran fourth edition for them, and two of the character, one of the characters, uh, well, they they were in a situation where there was they were traveling with a caravan, and a little girl was found out to be cursed with lycanthropy. She was a werewolf, and her parents begged and pleaded them to help cure her, and. They had found out through word of mouth that where they were camped currently for the next couple of days, there was nearby in the woods, there was a witch who could possibly help them cure the little girl. And so they went to the witch, they got the list of things they needed to do, and it was a long list of stuff to do to get all the ingredients to make this cure. And one of the players took the little girl uh, one night when everyone else was asleep, and she took her out into the middle of the woods and just slit her throat, and she said, I didn't want to do any of that shit. And everyone got real mad at her. And they fought in real life for about a week. How did that situation end up? Uh, they made up a story that they were they took the girl and they were going to see the witch and they were attacked by bandits and they killed the little girl and stole all of their stuff. And the parents weren't happy, but they also didn't have any reason to not believe the characters. But in real life, like I said, the three the three members of that party just fought at work every day for about a week. Were they able to work out the differences eventually? I think they eventually just sort of forgot about it and moved on. Have you ever told somebody that, no, they couldn't do something that you didn't agree with? No, I, I like I always try to leave it in the players. I'm just the the person who tries to move things in and forward, but I let them make all their own decisions. A laissez faire GM. Yeah, uh I suppose. I mean I, I I'm not there to manage people, I'm not there to control them, I'm just there to tell a story and help them write the story as we go along. Do you have any advice that you would give to a new GM before running their first session? I would say listen and watch a few things from people that you enjoy listening to and kind of learn, listen and learn how they set up their situations. Like, you know, like I said, there's a lot of tightrope you have to walk as a GM. You're always trying to not be boring, but you don't want to be too ridiculous. You're always trying to let people make their own decisions, but you don't want everything to fall apart because of it. You're always trying to not railroad them, but you want them to move forward in the story. You've got to be able to roll with the punches, and you've got to be able to learn how to write stories that are kind of open-ended, and always have a backup plan for when the characters decide to walk past the end. If you could only give them one recommendation for a podcast to listen to of an actual game, which would you tell? Oh, absolutely, The Adventure Zone, with uh, the McElroy brothers and their father. It's one of the funniest, most entertaining things. They're running D&D 5th edition, I believe, and they all take their characters pretty seriously, even though they're all just kind of spending the whole time making jokes. We're going to start getting wrapped up, but before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire, pioneered by Bernal Pivo. Okay. What is your favorite word? 
Uh, grimdark. What is your least favorite word? Moist. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Humor. Do you have a preferred branch of humor? Non-mocking humor, I guess. The humor that comes at the expense of others tends to put a pretty bad taste in my mouth really quick. What turns you off? Hate. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Mother bitch. Does that one come up often? Yeah, it's actually sort of become the catchphrase of one of my friends, and it's spread to everyone else. Whenever they do something wrong, they'll yell, Mother bitch. What sound or noise do you love? White noise. The static, specifically? Yeah, yeah, like the static on a TV after, you know, something's gone off the air. What sound or noise do you hate? Nails on a chalkboard, or anything that screeches in general. I suppose the good news is that you're not likely to find a chalkboard anywhere. Yeah, I mean, uh, screeching in general, like I said, like sometimes brakes screech or things like that. Uh, just metal on metal is a really bad one, too. What game system would you like to attempt? Uh, the new mage that just came out recently is definitely one I'm interested in trying to craft a story in and play. Any particular reason? I just really like the idea of there not necessarily being a set way that magic works. It's it's kind of limited by your imaginations and how much you want to try to push against reality. There's nothing that says that's just like, oh yeah, I'm just going to shoot fire and make a fireball. You know, you have to decide how that fire is going to happen and what it's going to look like. And it's all limited by you, not by a paragraph in a rule book. What game system would you not like to attempt? Any of those weird, like, parody, we took two things and mixed them together, like Cthulhu Mech. Or there's, like, a furry sci-fi one I've seen before. It, when you take two other genres and smash them together, it's not necessarily something that's interesting. And finally, when your campaign comes to an end, should it come to an end organically... What would you like to hear from your players? I can't wait to hear more. Speaking of, is there anywhere our listeners can hear more of you? Uh, well, I do have some friends, my friend John and Greg, uh, the same Greg I mentioned earlier who got me into D&D to begin with. They do a podcast every now and again called the Rabbit Hole Podcast, which you can find at Rabbit Hole podcast.com I've been a guest on there before and I'll probably be a guest on there again uh, other than that you can find me on Facebook uh, and that's about it is there a specific episode we should look up uh, I believe I was in episode 5 
But, you know, if you just like listening to guys talk about what they like about video games, books, comic books, uh, movies, and, you know, what they think is good and why they think it's good, you know, they're, it's a really good listen. It's been a pleasure to have you in the Master Studio today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, always be prepared for everything to go wrong. I'm Molly, a trans girl living in Seattle. Hi, I'm Ashley, a trans girl living in Florida. And I'm Jules, a trans girl living in Sydney, Australia. We're hosting a new amateur anecdotal advice podcast about what it's been like for us being trans. We'll be covering topics such as coming out, realization, experiences with HRT, thoughts on surgery, romance, and family. You can find us at TM Radiocast on Twitter, and you can send in questions to transmissionquestions at gmail.com and transmissionradiopodcast.tumblr.com. Join us three on what it's all about being trans in your mid-twenties through our own, frankly, weird and wonderful experiences.